I saw a tweet from a very prominent pastor who I generally really respect, but he said that anxiety is evidence of not trusting God. And I just thought, wow, if you want to come at me and talk to me about not trusting God, when I am having a response in my body based on something that I have lived that was not my fault and that I'm having to trust God in ways that I never could have guessed or predicted, you can go ahead and do that. But I think that is a gross misrepresentation of both scripture and the character of God. Just because I don't believe or agree doesn't mean I can't learn from you. Why did you have to bring that up? Okay, that one I'm super embarrassed about. <laughs> Do you like me? Do I like you? Yeah. As, a, as an individual or as, yeah, a, as, as a person? No, I like you. Okay, cool. Yeah. cool. And I don't have any interest in appearing to be stronger than I am. I ain't bowed a Nebuchadnezzar statue. He gonna leave. You feel me? How do we love people who see the world differently than we do? What would it look like if we truly loved all of our neighbors? Could listening to their stories be the first step? This is Seacoast Church, and there's way more to talk about. I'm Desiree Clement, campus administrator of our West Ashley campus. In part two of our mental health series for Mental Health Awareness May, the discussion addresses the ways in which mental health is misunderstood in the context of spirituality, specifically within the church. Why is it that Christians favor categories and formulas when it comes to what may be the most beautifully complicated thing on this earth, and that's a human being? Why isn't there more compassion and more open-handedness in the layers of humanity that no one outside of the person struggling can really have a thorough understanding of? A complexity that oftentimes the very person struggling hasn't complete understanding of. And pastors, why are they often perceived as superhuman? I'd imagine in some cases it's partly due to how that pastor represents him or herself, but could it also be that oftentimes people crave spiritual heroes? Something has to change. Joey and three others discuss the very issues in the church surrounding mental health. Lead Pastor Josh Stratt, a therapist, Elizabeth Gillespie, and Amy Patrick, whose husband, Pastor Darren Patrick, took his life almost exactly three years ago from the time this episode is being released. Before we hear from these three, however, Lynn Stroy and Roy Jakes, our campus pastor in Somerville, have some questions for Joey, who shared his story in last week's episode of his mental health crisis back in 2019. Through the course of this series, listeners are encouraged to email any questions one may have to podcast at seacoast.org. In the fifth and final episode of the series, Joey, along with two therapists, will address your questions. Now, here's Lynn Troy, Roy Jakes, and Joey Svensson. All this anxiety plaguing our humanity. What are we doing to be the rest for this brokenness in our society? All right, so first, we're going to have a little fun. I'm going to show Lynn something. I don't know if Lynn has seen this or not. <laughs> I'll, I'll show you first, though, Roy. <laughs> you seen this, Lynn? <laughs> I have not seen Do you know that. who that is? <laughs> I, I, I'm, by the way, you guys are laughing. I feel like it might be the two of you. <laughs> it is the two of us, and it is and it is a birthday at Burger King. Now, going by... Burger King! Yeah. <laughs> now, now, going by that picture, whose birthday is it? Whose birthday is it, Glenn? (laughs) I mean, who's the cake being sat down in front of? You see Roy smiling? He's kind of sitting on the end. Is this Roy? Yes. And then that's me to the right. Yeah. It was actually my birthday party. (laughs) But I was such a weirdo, I wanted to sit up against the wall. And and this is where it all began. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Roy started teasing me that day. <laughs> that is incredible. Oh, oh fast goodness. food restaurant birthday parties. Remember man. when you actually sat in restaurants? Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> 
Like you sat in McDonald's. You sat in Burger King. You sat in Pizza Hut. Those are great days. How did you not have a crown on? That's true. That's true. They probably were bringing those out. (laughs) They probably were bringing those out. Yeah, for sure. Well, mental health, mental illness. We're going to take the whole month of May to discuss this. And I'm curious, what's y'all's closest run in personally? Either you struggling through something mental health related or a close friend, loved one, Roy, what's, what's like your closest? I'd say as, as just as pastor, I've, I've dealt with so much with people. I literally just had a phone call last week, serious uh, issue going on, the bipolar, schizophrenic stuff and uh, in, a, in a young kid, just super, super sad and, uh, and heartbreaking what this family's going through. So I'd say mostly for me, but a lot, a lot. I feel like I've been exposed to it a lot over the last few years, but just as pastor to, to congregation. Do you feel like you have acquired more understanding over the years? Absolutely. A Seacoast has helped me. A Seacoast has been a big part of that, right? It just in terms of the way that we've embraced that, talked about it, the amount of conversation we've had around this issue. So yeah, I've, I've learned a ton over the years. Still, it's, it's interesting. I think, I think uh, you know, if the, the question's asked, like, do you feel like you understand mental illness? The, the, the truth is no. Mm. I still don't feel like I understand yeah. it because there's just so much. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing to me. Like, I just don't understand. But this, the, the empathy, sympathy, I'm not sure what's the right word there, mm-hmm. but my level of quote unquote understanding, being able to walk with families without just going, oh, just pray harder, right? right. Or, you know, suck it up. And, but certainly my ability to, to just walk with families through it has grown tremendously. Yeah. How often have you told someone, I love you, I'm here for you, but you need to find someone that's, professionally equipped. Is it an often occurrence when you talk to someone, you're like, this is above my head? As 100%. No, I've gotten real, <laughs> I've gotten real comfortable with that, um, just knowing that I'm not equipped. So so I tell people all the time, I want to be your pastor. And some of that can, can include some counseling, a little sure. bit of pastoral counseling. But I can't be your counselor, your, your professional counselor. Mm-hmm. I certainly can't be your doctor. I certainly can't be your psychologist. I've come to, to a point where I clearly understand what I'm capable of and what I'm not capable of and real comfortable saying you need to seek somebody bigger than me. Yeah. yeah. Even before I hear, honestly, a lot of times what I try to do is before I hear their story is I just say, Hey, I'm glad to meet with you. I don't, you know, but, but just so you know, mm-hmm. I don't claim to be a professional counselor. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I was trained to be a pastor, not a, a counselor. Which um, is huge, by the way, because I think a lot of pastors, in fact, people will hear Amy Patrick, a therapist friend of mine, Josh and myself, we talk about the fact that, you know, according to this therapist, she's, she's a Christian woman and it is a problem. Pastors mm-hmm. trying to 100%. take more stuff on that they have no business trying to handle. Mm-hmm. I agree a problem. 100%. 100%. We, we, for some reason, we've taken on that job description. That, that, that's supposed to be part of what we do. You know, again, I tell people all the time, I can counsel you from the Bible. As a pastor, my, my job is to help you understand what does God's word say about your situation. But there are so many things beyond that that I'm just not equipped for. Some are, and to their credit, awesome. I know some, even right here in Seco, some of our pastors have taken the steps of getting some certifications, getting credentials because they wanted to do more in that. That's awesome. What about you, Lynn? After I, the year after I graduated from college, Moved in with some friends and I was working at a law firm. Another girl was working at 
the law firm, a coworker. We became friends through working and she um, ended up having a, a life event and lost her housing. And so I invited her to come live with me and my friends. Um, and she ended up having a, cri- a mental health crisis during that period. And, um, and how old were you? 21. Dang, 21. that's pretty young to to encounter something like that. Yeah. that your only roommate? No, just the two no, of you no, were... no, there were three of okay, us. Okay. Uh, three, she moved in with three, gotcha. three other girls. Okay. So there were four of us in the house. Um, but it was one of those situations where it was my idea for her to move in because we were like in our 20s and we were all working these salary jobs. And I was like, we could have rent that was less than $200. <laughs> so when she started to have the crisis, the other two roommates that I'd grown up with, they were friends. They were like, you have to handle this because you were the one who invited her to live with us. And so <laughs> <laughs> you did this, Lynn. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think for her, it's something that she has struggled with all of her life. But the event that happened in her life, I think, and I'm not, obviously, I'm not a doctor or clinician, um, but I think there was that helped to trigger some of what was going on. And so her mom lived in Virginia, had to get her mom to come down and sit her down and tell her she needed professional help. And so just watching her on that long road and even, you know, walking, we're still friends. Mm-hmm. And so like walking with her, it was it was really interesting because she would stay in her bed unless it was time to go to work. And I every morning I would like wake up, knock on the door and like make her get up to come to work. And one day our boss pulled me in and was like, she's going to lose her job if she doesn't get it together. Even looking back on that in a time where I wasn't walking with the Lord and I was in my 20s. And so um, even some of the support that I was there for her um, and helping her. And some of it was, sel- you know, it was selfish. It wasn't, I don't think at the time I like recognized what do we need to do to get her healthy? It was like, hey, this is crazy. We need to like fix the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of more about what was going on in our home yeah. than like, hey, what's going on with her? And so over the years, like being good friends with her through decades and and seeing you know, the struggle that she's gone through, it's kind of shifted that yeah. perspective. How how long ago was that? Sorry, oh, I didn't mean, I'm not... Right. Are you trying to figure out Lynn's no, age? No, no, I mean, no, I'm not. It, it was tw- my 20-year college anniversary is this year. So it was 20 years ago. <laughs> well, I think the interesting part about that is to hear Lynn say, like, boss called and says she's going to lose her job. If she doesn't get her act together. Like, 20 years later, I mean, like, how much have we grown in this area, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. 20 years ago, a mental health, a, a mental illness crisis like that would have cost you a job. Yeah. Would it cost you a job in 2023 or or, or have we gotten to the place where, I mean, I, obviously here at Seacoast, yeah. we, we, we show grace in that area, but would the, does the rest of the world, have they caught up to that? Well, it, it probably depends, but I'll tell you this much. If the media were to ever get a hold of a business that fired someone because of mental health, they'd be grilled. Right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like right. it's, that's not acceptable sure. anymore. And that's what struck me, Lynn, is, is his words actually no fault of his own. I mean, to him, it was, she needs to get stuff together sort of thing but man that's a that's a tough thing to hear if you're actually going through like a mental health crisis yeah. it's like yeah I, I know i need to get my stuff together Can yeah figure that out for me <laughs> yeah. and 20 and 20 years ago a lot of us probably thought like that right yeah. oh yeah. yeah listening to last week's episode i just the question came up to me like why did you get off your medication like what caused you like what motivated you to do that yeah so i remember i got on medication for the first time in 99 so 20, 25 years ago and kind of an up and down battle it was it was not a quick fix in fact I played around with, uh, or the psychiatrist played around with different medications. I don't think that they really took effect until like 2004. You know, mostly on between 2004 and 2019 when things fell apart. But I got off my medication because I felt like I
like I was in really good physical shape, mental shape. I had been getting some therapy and there's side effects with antidepressants, especially SSRIs, libido issues, kind of subdued emotions. I like to be emotional. I like to watch a movie and, and lose my heart to it sort of thing. And that kind of stuff is just really stifled. So that was motivating enough for me to say, I got to at least see how I respond to no medication. Like I got to see, uh, because if I can be off, then I would like to, because I don't like the side effects. But I will say this, Lynn, having gone through what I've gone through now, I mean, it would take a chariot from heaven with a slew of angels saying, mm. you need to get off your medic. I just, there's just no point because it really is for me choosing medicine and then some of the negative stuff that comes along with it or choosing without and maybe dying. I mean, that's 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 basically what it comes down to me. I mean, you remember when I went through what I went through. I mean, I was in danger. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. When you made that decision to go off, did you consult your doctor in that or did you oh, do it man. by yourself? Lynn, 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 Lynn. <laughs> did you talk to Priscilla? <laughs> so so I had had I had experience and I had the knowledge of how to wean myself off. And so this is this is me trying to defend myself. So when I talked to the doctor after the fact, he said, nah, yeah, you, you weaned yourself off in the way that I would have told you. But bottom line, I had no business doing that on my own. Uh, and worse is I did it with Priscilla not knowing. Mm. And that that's just horrible to, for, wow. for me yeah. to do that to my wife. When I told her, I felt like I was in good shape, you know? Just interesting, Joey, what uh, if, if 1990, so you've been on medicine since 1999, or you had been? It's, except for a few years, pretty okay. much I've been on medication. Take us back to 1999. Like, what was what was going on that you felt like you needed to be on medication for? Well, so here's the thing is my, so my dad has suffered from anxiety and depression for most of his adult life. And so my parents started seeing things in me and they suggested, hey, you may be struggling with things that your dad struggles with. And I was, I was not having any of it. I thought it was like spiritual struggles. Like I just, seriously, like I was like, no, you know, if I, if I get my faith right, if I start doing this right, then that kind of stuff will work itself out. Well, it's kind of a funny story as far as how I realized it. But basically my brother was, he was in Greenville. I was in Rock Hill, both of us in college. And he was setting me up with a blind date for Saturday. And it was no big deal. But I was kind of looking forward to it. This would be fun. He calls me maybe like four or five in the afternoon. He's just like, don't come. It's off. She's not going to be able to. And I sat on my little couch in my dorm room, devastated, just absolutely. De- I was like, what, what am I devastated for? And it was like the first time I realized my brain's not really working mm. because I mean, a normal functioning brain would be like, Oh, dang. Well, let me call my buddies and we'll play video games. Yeah. You know, not devastation sure. over a girl. I don't even know. Sure. Well. I, I want to ask y'all this. So how do you guys respond? Be, be as honest as you can when you hear of someone that's on medication for mental illness. What's the first thing that goes off in your brain? Like, how do you respond to that? I don't know that anything goes off in my brain now. Yeah. Like, I have a lot of friends who are on. So I, I think at this point in my life over the years, it just seems normal. It's interesting. Here's what I would say. I have a couple of people close to me who are on medication and if I'm being honest, I wish they weren't. Like, like I would love to see the day where they weren't. But I don't have that thought about anybody else. So what, as Lynn said, like it's compl- I completely normalize it. As I said, with congregation, with people coming to me, like encourage it. 
I think there's still something inside of me when I know people who have been on medication for like lifelong. I, I, I still I still yearn for a day that I that I wish that they weren't having to be on it. Mm-hmm. And and why? Because you care about them so much and you would just rather them not be putting chemicals in their body? Like why why is it more of a desire for someone that's closer to you? I don't know. Is is uh, I mean is, does it have anything to do with stigma? Like, I wish they weren't in the category of people that have to take medicine. Could it be subtly? No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. I'm not sure anybody would even know. And, and here's the truth. You know, maybe it's still some of that old way of thinking. I guess I just still see it as I wish that I wish that we didn't have to depend on medicine. Mm-hmm. There are times we just have to. But I still yearn for the day that we didn't have to depend on medicine. Call that healing. Mm-hmm. Call that whatever i don't i don't know i don't know what that means necessarily i i wish that for those individuals closest to me that like they wouldn't have to depend on medication mm. yeah so it kind of sounds like a, a heart of care like you just don't want them to have to depend on it yeah yeah all right if you could have a birthday party at any fast food restaurant this year where would it be roy since Burger King's no longer around. <laughs> <laughs> I'd pick McDonald's if they brought all those characters out. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> and I'm still, I'm, I'm, do, you, hey, do you have a favorite fast food restaurant? Oh, yeah, 100%. Chick-fil-A? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Same for you? Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. Yeah. 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 I think me too, but I do like Taco Bell. Oh, Joey. Don't say it tastes bad because it doesn't taste bad. It's engineered for your taste. Now, if you want to say it's bad quality, that's fine. Here's the, here's, it's just mush. Oh, but it's just here's, delightful here's mush. The, Zaxby sauce or Chick-fil-A sauce? Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A sauce. Oh, man. man. <laughs> <laughs> Look at these Chick-fil-A diehards over here. Good gosh. It's more about the way that you're loving, Ava. That can save you, not the words that you be shamed. Or just your praying. It's the way that you love. That can Amy, make a I saw on, on Facebook a picture of you and two of your kids. Yes. Do you have kids that have moved out? I do. Two of them are pretty. Two of them are pretty much on their own now. Yeah. So two out, two two home. So yeah, things are changing around here every day. Amy, I want to know: Is your son signed any contracts with any major league baseball teams yet, or is not not yet? Not yet. We we shall see. Things shall continue to unfold there. I'm sure. Yes. (laughs) We have Elizabeth Gillespie. If you are a regular regular listener, she was one of the therapists uh, on the first episode of this year. We checked in with five different therapists. Uh, you should check that episode out because there's some very helpful stuff. But her husband and I graduated from Winthrop University together. Now you guys are way out in Colorado, right? Right. Way right. far been, out. It, yeah. <laughs> and you've been a therapist for how long now? Oh, 12-ish years. 12-ish. Yeah, somewhere there around there. Awesome. Yeah, I've also... I, I also tend to work on church staff on and off, on and off, often in the two of them together. Gotcha. Cool. Just a, a little bit of a timeline. Josh, you had to walk through two very serious uh, situations on your staff with a mental health crisis. And one of them, you know, we're still looking at it, but one of them turned out all right. And that's me talking right now through a, a season where I'd I say was... it turned out all right is fairly right. subjective, but yeah. <laughs> 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 all right. All right. Now I don't know how to visit the other side of this now that we're all laughing. (laughs) 
Uh, goodness. One of them had a tragic ending. Josh, d- did you think a lot about mental health, mental illness? Had you been given any reason to really have that on your radar before I really had that horrible season in 2019? And then obviously, Darren tragically taking his life. I mean, I feel like probably like a lot of pastors around this topic, I have been growing in my um, education on it uh, over the last decade or so. Um, Just for a little bit of context, uh, my wife, Lisa, who helps me lead around here, you know, when we, she went to medical school, she ended up starting to take some medication for an anxiety disorder that she had uh, that for the longest time, we didn't know how to handle it, tried to pray through it, tried to address you know, other issues around it. Uh, and medication really helped her a lot during that season. So I, I think having walked through that with her, the hard part with mental health is it's such a broad range of, you know, topics and issues that are under that umbrella. But with anxiety, I'd at least seen where, man, that medication really helped her a lot. And um, and then from there, she was able to address some other things that were going on too. But, but no, I mean, I don't know that it was high on my radar in terms of uh, something that I had to deal with on a day-in and day-out basis, or at least that I knew I was dealing with uh, on a day-in and day-out basis. I think I I probably did deal with it a lot more with people on our team and people that were close to me, but we didn't really have a lot of language or understanding for how to talk about it. Yeah. Amy, there was a a night where I just remember also clearly just because of the gravity of the situation, but Priscilla and myself met with Pastor Josh and and Lisa in the depths of my despair. And I, I asked Lisa, Uh, recently, because I could tell she was really wanting me to check myself into the hospital, you know, all but making me could tell that's what she wanted. And I asked her later, I said, you know, if if what had happened to Darren had already happened and we were sitting in that office, like what what would your resolve have been? And I mean, she was just like, yeah, I would have done everything I could to, to basically force you. Amy, I reached out to you about this conversation. You are hesitant to just stamp the mental illness label on what happened to Darren because there was never any sort of diagnosis along the lines of like clinical depression. Am I saying that correctly? Right. And I have obviously had to look at these issues pretty closely and I'm certainly not implying that there wasn't that there wasn't something in the realm of a a significant mental health challenge or a mental health diagnosis going on with Darren. But his story is different, even from some other, you know, pretty prominent pastoral suicides where there there was a very clear diagnosis that someone had been dealing with for years that people had been concerned about for years and then, you know, having a tragic end. I think sometimes what happens on the topic of suicide is that everything gets lumped under that category. And I think there are, you know, I think we can obviously say that if someone does that kind of violence to themselves, something has clearly deteriorated uh, quite a bit, you know, on, on a mental health level. But I think there are a lot of reasons and a lot of nuance and compl- a complexity around the issue of suicide. And frankly, I think it's disrespectful to survivors and to people who have died in that way to simplify it too much in that way or to give just one reason. Clearly, it was a mental illness. Well, 
there, I think there are way more reasons than that. It's really important to me in general, I think in what I've lived and what I've learned to honor the complexity of our humanity. And so, um, which I think sometimes we don't know how to do, frankly, in our, in our evangelical Christian circles. And so that's kind of where I was going, you know, with that concern is that I'm just, I'm not saying that that's not possible or probable as far as what happened with him. The answer is just start that simple. Yeah. And I asked Chip Judd, so uh, any new listeners, he's a pastor on staff and and kind of our resident therapist. He literally watches out for the staff and, and our mental health. And one question that I kept asking him on the other side of my mental health crisis was, Chip, obviously I have a clinical disposition, I guess you could say, for depression, anxiety, going back to childhood. But he, he used to tell me when I was in the real thick of it, he would say, Joey, got to remember this is something happening to you. It's happening to you. In other words, this isn't something that you need to be necessarily thinking, hey, what did I do? How did I bring this onto myself? And the pushback that I w- would always give him, though, is there has to be some responsibility and not necessarily anything for me to feel guilty about, but things I've believed in the past, things that were told to me in the past. There had to have been things that I did in addition to the chemicals in my head to bring me to this place. And it just kind of seems like all one and the same. And so Elizabeth, I would just put it all in the category of mental health, our past, our upbringing, our parents, abuse, everything. And then maybe some people also have some challenges with chemicals in our head that even makes it worse. But how would you address what Amy just said as far as where she would put all this? Yeah, Amy, I love what you said. I'm really appreciative of you naming the complexity of it and also the disrespect and that comes with the oversimplification. Like I just kind of the othering, like, okay, we're just going to put you in this category that I don't have to worry about it. And so thank you for saying that. I, I do, there's mental health. It's exactly how you said it, Joy, right? There's this huge umbrella and every single one of us falls under that. We all have a degree of mental health in the same way we have a degree of what we call physical health that we think is separate and different. I don't really think that, but, and then there are mental disorders and that is one piece under the whole mental health thing. Something that doesn't get talked about enough outside of my therapy world is ACEs. Are you all familiar with, with ACEs? It stands for adverse childhood events experiences. And there's just a lot of research around these being the certain particular things that happen in childhood that really predict a degree of struggle with mental health or mental illness more specifically that I think is a really important thing to look at when considering the big picture. So if someone does not have a, I'm probably stating the obvious here, but just to make sure I am connecting the mm-hmm. dots, someone who does not have mental disorder, a, a mental disorder would still very much so benefit from therapy. Absolutely. And there are people who have mental disorders who I would consider far more healthy than those who do not. So it gets kind of messy with this question of health. You know, I think we all know several people who are depressed and it looks really different in each person and the way they engage with it looks really different. And so I I also kind of like to separate that piece out. 
Amy, Darren, and I, I, I would say we were buddies. We never, I don't think we were like super tight friends. He knew what I had experienced and what I had been through in my past, years past. And I'll never forget <clears throat> in preparing for this conversation, I've just gotten emotional a lot. I don't know why. Well, I guess I do know why it's an emotional topic. So forgive me if I get a little choked up. But I remember <clears throat> him calling and just, I mean, I, I know that voice. I hear that voice. I know what it feels like. Basically, he was inconsolably crying, talking, and he just basically said, Joey, what did you do when you were in this position? How, how did you continue? When I hear someone talk from that posture that I'm so used to being in myself. It's just such a, a heavy deal. And I say that because that has depression written all over it. And so, Elizabeth, would you say that it's it would make sense to say that Darren was depressed, but may not necessarily the mental illness of depression. I'm just trying to figure out, like, is there a distinction between the two from a professional standpoint? Like if you're talking to someone and they're going into their history and you're like, well, my gosh, no wonder you're depressed. I mean, not too many people have to go through the sort of stuff that you went through as opposed to someone that may talk in a very doom and gloom posture and you're like, gosh, life isn't that bad for this person situationally. Is there a different way that you handle that from a professional standpoint? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'll say, I don't, I don't feel like I can speak to what exactly was going on with Darren. Sure. I mean, Amy, you know that far better than me, but different people see this differently. Um, the medical model, model very much wants to have a diagnosis, right? That, that it's helpful. But for therapists, we don't really make a lot of distinction between someone who presents with depressed symptoms versus someone who would officially meet the DSM, you know, criteria for major depressive disorder. Like I'm going to engage with them the same. What will change is the severity of the depression and how much it is impacting their life. If, if, if they're generally the more depressive symptoms, the more likely you are to be diagnosed with major depressive disorder. The really, the only thing that changes it is one is we're trying to get them to be able to function the best they can in life. And so it's how much it's interfering with their life and foreseeing warning signs around suicidal ideation, because obviously it is tightly well, maybe not, obviously. Depression and suicide are very tightly connected, but it's not, there can be a lot of other actual mental disorders tied to tied to suicide. There could be that there wasn't actually even officially a mental disorder that can, can be tied to it too. Amy, when you see big picture now and you've had a few years now to reflect more, and I'm sure there'll be even more reflecting when, when you personally think about Darren's tragic end, do you see it clearly in one way or another? Like, you know more about that man than most people on this earth as far as what he grew up with, uh, the, the, his life experiences, the things that he didn't get in life that people need for a healthy life. Do you see it as kind of just this lifelong trajectory and the unfortunate, he never really got the deeper help that he needed? You know, it's really, it, it, in one sense, 
it's not hard for me to look at Darren's life and it wasn't hard for him to look at his life and understand um, a lot of the trauma that he experienced, some of even just the proclivity of his own temperament and how that interacted, you know, with, with the family he grew up in and trauma and, you know, lots of things put together, but his story is not one that is quite that linear. Uh, and clear cut. And I, and frankly, I think a lot of people's stories aren't, aren't nearly as linear and, and simple as we would like them to be. And so, you know, many people who knew Darren would say he had made tremendous progress in a lot of areas. I can certainly say that about him, um, that a lot of things had changed, you know, in him for the better. And I, I've talked before about a level of mystery here, um, that I've had to learn to accept and, and get comfortable with, not as a means of denying. Anything, And as I said, clearly, when someone ends their life in this way, there's at least a level of despair that that is, you know, a level of hopelessness that they don't feel there's any any way out of. But, you know, in his case, it's just not that this or that, you know, one or the other black and white cut and dry. And, And I think for most for many of us. It's not that simple. Yeah. I would imagine you probably tried to, you know, stay clear from a lot of the ridiculous chatter online days within him taking his life, but how brutal the church can unfortunately be in. And it's something that I think in recent years, I've, I've really just slowed down to, for lack of better words, appreciate just how much is involved in someone's history and their story that, you know, we talk to people in casual conversations and day to day, and we have no clue what that person's been through, what that person is going through at that moment. And it seems like of all people, Christians should be the ones that live in that place of, man, we, we need a redeemer. Everybody needs a redeemer. And like what he went through, whatever caused this to happen, it was so bad that he did not feel that there was any other solution. Like why isn't our hearts first response grief instead of trying to find blame like what was the most frustrating thing when it comes to what you saw in the church in regards to what happened to Darren and then mental health in general yeah I mean there are I think there's a lot of elements to that question on one level I understand that we we want to simplify things and categorize things because we feel safer when we can do that so and I, and I understand my own inclination towards that. You know, if it's, if we can simplify it down, then it feels more like something that we can control. I think one of the biggest frustrations for me, and I've heard this from other, um, you know, survivors is sort of, particularly with suicide, the simplification of, well, I wish they just would have had someone to talk to. And then people usually add, if you need something, I'm here for you. If you need to talk to me. And, and I think, I mean, even in this circle, you know, I've got Josh on here, you know, and you, Darren had people to talk to like, it wasn't just an absence of that. And I, and I understand that we just want there to be an easy answer. Well, if everyone had this, well, it's not that easy. While I understand it, um, I think it's, it's sloppy and, and negligent. Um, But I also think, honestly, a lot of Christians have not grown up in a church context that really gave us a lot of room to understand the implication of our stories and what we've lived 
after salvation and even an understanding of like what is made new. Like, yes, we have a new identity. Yes, we are in Christ. Yes, our destiny has changed. But that doesn't mean our history is erased in the sense of not having implications in our brains and in our bodies. And so I am deeply concerned about some of the spiritual bypassing that happens around that, that just does not allow for people to be able to process those things. I'm very concerned. Um, I appreciated what Elizabeth said a moment ago about our physical health and our mental health not being different things, because I, I think the church has not helped us understand how to be connected to our bodies. Um, we talk about being fearfully and wonderfully made, but you know, can we talk about what does that mean? What is happening in your brain? you know, in response to to what you've lived and what do we know about that? I think there are some huge missing pieces here uh, that we really need to do a much better job of of understanding and being able to help people along with. Yeah. And I, I know Josh knows this part of my story and I also understand why it makes people uncomfortable, but I mean, it just is what it is. I, I And I remember telling Priscilla and, and Chip, you know, two people who were very close to the situation, Josh as well. And, and for me, when I was in the darkest of, of days, the notion of God didn't do anything for me. If anything, it made it worse because when my brain gets really sick, the low-hanging fruit is a lot of the toxic religion that I grew up with that was very much so fear-based and law-based and, oh my gosh, if I do this, am I going to go to hell? And those sorts of things, when my brain is broken, that's the kind of stuff that comes to the surface. And so here I am trying to navigate finding peace with God and that's the very challenging thoughts are thoughts about God. And so I, I, I want to say Chip even told me, he's just like, look, right now, just lean on our faith. Like you don't need to think about God. But I, I think that's a tough one for Christians to wrap their mind around is the same organ that is utilized when we taste food is the same organ that's utilized when we think about God, when we commune with God. That's just how God made us, the brain. That is the organ that interacts with things. That's the organ that prays. When that's broken, there's a chance that the sorts of things that are the default go-tos that Christians go to for peace and, and support in God may not be there when someone's brain is broken. Elizabeth, how do you feel about that? Is that like an important thing for Christians to be able to wrap their mind around? So important. I was just, there's so many levels, like layers to that. Yeah. I mean, but that's part of like kind of the definition of depression is that you being able to hold your own value and the value of other people in your lives is just almost non-existent, depending on how severe it is for you in that moment. And it, and it can wildly swing very quickly. We, we used to think it was like this progression, but no, it can be like this all over the place, Joey. You probably know that personally, right? And so I think that's really important. And also just this idea that, I mean, we all sitting here together believe and appreciate truth, right? Like there's facts and there's information, but the idea that we can run it all from cognitive and dismiss the value of emotion, dismiss the value of experience, then, you know, dismiss the value of like somatically what your, like, like your physical body is telling you is a, is a huge, it's a huge problem everywhere, but it feels like it's especially a problem in the church that we are scared of bodies and we are scared of personal experience and we are scared of emotions. I mean, all of those things were preached against my entire childhood. Yeah. Josh, 
And I, I, I love, I just love being a part of this church because these sorts of questions could make people kind of squirmy, but not around these parts. I mean, we just talk about stuff that we think is going to move our, uh, you know, God's kingdom in a, in a better direction. But, you know, I know that, I, or I think, I don't know, but I think your dad may have been more involved in the pastoring process with Darren. You know, obviously your dad's not here. So I'm asking you and Amy, I would be curious on your thoughts. And then Elizabeth, maybe from a mental health perspective when it comes to the church. But Josh, when you look back on all of this, do you think to yourself, we could have done this a little bit differently, or maybe we should have done more of this or, or less of that? Because I think I've said this to, to Amy before. It seems to me that if you're someone like Darren, and I, I think we've all been in this situation to where we can say to other people, we can say, hey, I'm accountable to someone else. Hey, I'm going to open myself up. I'm going to tell the, the darker thoughts to someone else. And we can say that, but we still have complete autonomy over just how much we do that. Basically, what I'm saying is Darren could have said, yes, I'm accountable. Yes, I'm telling people what I need to talk through. Yes, I'm being open. But at the end of the day, he could have chosen not to. So there could have been stuff that needed to be talked about that Pastor Greg has no idea because Darren's not talking about it. I mean, do you do you think of anything looking back, Josh, like, man, maybe we could have done something differently or Anytime you lose someone that you love, I, I, I don't know. I, it just feels like that's a pretty normal response to try to go, gosh, could I have? And so, I, I mean, I met with Darren one week before he passed away in person. We spent some time together here in the foyer of the church, and he was really, he was down. Uh, he was sad. There was a lot going on uh, in obviously the world in 2020, but that specifically impacted Darren and just the number of churches that he was serving and involved with. And so I think there were just a lot of things up in the air, uh, a lot of challenges. And so we talked about his role at Seacoast and kind of firm that I want to just reassure him that we were not going to be making any changes to that, that we still wanted to have him as a part of our teaching team and actually talked about some more responsibilities that he could take on for us. And so I look back on that conversation and I'm like, man, that was, wasn't the first time that Darren had been sad that we'd had conversations where he was you know, down. So it wasn't alarming in any way. It wasn't like uh, something that I felt like I should have seen something and then my last conversation with Darren was about three or four hours before he passed away. He was at a meeting with us. And I'm sure I've, uh, I don't know if I shared this with you, Amy, or not, but um, man, he, he felt so good. Like he, he, he was, he had taken what we talked about the week before in terms of his increased ownership of some of our series. And he, I mean, he laid out a, a series that we were going to do on Acts and uh, his availability and where it was and all of that stuff. And so, I, you know, that conversation, I was like, man, I don't know that I could have seen anything there. And that's why I love what you said earlier, Amy. And I just think it's really important for us to to understand because I walked Joey through, not walked him through, walked with him in, in moments where I, like I went to bed going, I don't know, like, I, you know, what, what are we going to do to try to save his life? Because it just didn't seem like uh, it, there was a lot of hope. And, and he was just in such a dark place in, in his mind. Um, I never, ever got any any of that impression from Darren. Um, even when we talked about his lowest points, when you would look back on kind of uh, the end of his time leading the journey and what you guys had walked through, 
he referenced times that he was depressed and, you know, I think even considered that, but, um, I never would have guessed. So the two of you to compare you to, you really couldn't, I mean, you were, you were debilitated. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't even function in day-to-day life. Darren preached the week before he died. For me, I don't know how to categorize that. I'm learning. This conversation's already been super helpful for me, but sure, gosh, I wish I would have asked him. Uh, I wish I, there's questions I wish I would have dug deeper on. I think that's a normal human reaction when you lose somebody like that. But if I just go objective, I don't know that, that like there was this major thing that I missed uh, and I wasn't the closest person to Darren in terms of who he would go to for stuff like that. Like you said, said, Amy, you and my dad, and I mean, he had counselor, he had people that he would talk to before he would talk to me about that stuff. But I think there's a part of me as his friend, as somebody who, you know, just, uh, I wish that I had done more certainly, but I don't feel like I can take responsibility. Um, cause I don't know that, that there was this glaring sign that I missed. I, I think that's something important about suicide that even the mental health world is kind of there's been a lot of research that's come out recently about suicide and we had always kind of conceptualized it like, like very linear process. Like you start wanting to not exist then you start wanting to die. Then you start thinking about how you could, and then you start gathering the ways and, you know, and we wanted to track it and be able to control it that way. But now what we know is that someone can swing in and out of an intent to die 10 times in a day. And, and so really, wrong place, wrong time, wrong moment, you know, like it, it is almost impossible to like nail down that place because it can just be a moment. And then if you have access to the thing, you're driving a car, whatever, and you can act. And so like as, as mental health providers, when we have someone who, if we know that they have suicidal ideation is just trying to work with those moments when, if there's something there, they're going to do it. I have permission from my client to share this, but one of my client's husbands, we knew he was going to kill himself and we did everything, everything we could. It, it was all consuming for months. And at the end of the day, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't stop it. And that if, if someone wants to die consistently enough or at the, just the wrong time, they are. And I, and I think the last thing is, it's, I think it's sometimes not even just like, and I don't know what the case was with Darren, but like, no, it's not even just that people are intentionally withholding information about what's going on with them. It's that they may not know. They may not have the words for it. They may not have the self-awareness. They may be on staff at a church where they're running around a million miles. Like there's not, you know, and, and I think about the Enneagram and how so many church leaders are Enneagram threes and self-awareness is not high on the gifts of naturally of, a, of an Enneagram three, right? So I think about all those pieces Sometimes it's, it's not deceit. It might be self-deceit or no deceit. It's just they haven't learned it yet. Yeah. yeah, Josh, exactly what you compared with Darren and I. That's that's why Darren's suicide was so confusing for me. And obviously now I recognize, well, duh, everybody's different and brains are different. But I just walked through knowing what it felt like for month after month after month of just immense sadness. And it just, over time, I just felt forced into this place of there's, there's no other, there's no other way out. There's no other better solution for my family, but it took a long time for me to get there. And then it was like, once I was there, I was there. And then I hear Darren is teaching a class one night 
And then the next day, it's gone. I was like, wait a second. I didn't think that's how that worked. <laughs> I just walked through that myself sort of thing. You know, Elizabeth, I, I never heard it articulated that way that like within one day, someone can go in and out of sincere plans to to end it. I'm curious just to speak in general terms on the pastoral role. And I think how confusing the notion can be that, hey, we're looking at these people for leadership. And, you know, they're obviously a pastor for a reason because they've been called and they've been called because of such and such and blah, blah, blah. And we forget human beings that are susceptible to depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, addictions, bad mistakes. I mean, pastors are just like anybody else. Is there a consistent problem with how churches view the role pastor and what the sort of expectations there are for pastors that could possibly put them in situations to where it is harder to be healthier mentally? 100%. (laughs) I'm actually a pastor's kid. So grew up, you know, watching in the South, you know, like grew up, it it feels a little bit calmer out here in Colorado around those things. But yeah, I mean, it it is, it's just such a, it's, it's just, first of all, it is such a demanding job. Like I, this is the thing that I, when I'm, when I'm being defending a pastor or defending, I'm like, do you understand what it is like to live in this role day after day, year after year? It is so difficult. And then you add the piece. I mean, I I know this is so like the stereotypical, everybody uses this language, but like the way that things get projected on pastors, particularly around their, their dads, I see it constantly. And I also know that sometimes it feels good to have that projected on to you. You want to be the person's savior. You want, I mean, this is person by person, right? You want to, it feels good. I mean, you all know this better than, I mean, you, you, you all know this very well, but then there's these expectations around certain moral behaviors that expect someone not to be human. I don't think I've ever really consistently been a part of a church on staff or just as a member where it's the pastor felt like they could be really fully honest about what they were struggling with, even if it didn't hit any of those big, scary Christian categories that we like to <laughs> hit, it didn't feel safe. And I just, I just feel like I experienced that again and again and again. I feel it less out here because it feels less of a focus on moralism and Christianity being wedded together, but it's still a thing. Kind of a, a somewhat of a random question, a little off track, but I think very important. Do you think that we would have a bit more patience understanding and either even sympathy for people who are struggling with what we would call sin if we had the scientific ability to connect it to ailments in our mental health. Like in other words, I think oftentimes as Christians, we just see, well, sin, that's bad. You're doing something bad. You need to stop doing something bad. Well, yeah, we all agree with that because sin is bad for you. Stay away from it because God loves you and doesn't want you to. But, But a lot of times it's kind of like a point the finger, you shouldn't. And I think oftentimes, if not most of the time, there's legit reasons why someone gravitates towards something unhealthy. It's because of bad habits. It's because of brain chemicals. It's because of upbringing. Like, wouldn't that bring a little bit more grace into the situation? Like, instead of looking at someone as, oh, well, they're addicted to pornography. That's really bad. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. 
but maybe go way back in time to potential sexual abuse or lack of ability to connect with others. And so they go into, you know, the world of pornography where it's very much so shallow and not fulfilling, but that's just what we have more grace and understanding for one another. If we look deeper into the science, does that, or does that even make sense? I mean, I think it's kind of two things for me. It's like, one, could we just hold more grace for people, period? I like that. I like that. Right? Like, that would be a really nice, that like, that someone could be doing something they, you know, that someone could be sinning. Well, we all are all the time, but whatever, in this way that we've decided is a big sin and that we could just hold that with graciousness and kindness. That that would be nice. Um, But but yes, because we can't really sparse out what's what, what, you know, what is chemicals in your brain, you know, whether it's childhood, whether it's your, the current situation that you're going on. I mean, we don't, we don't know enough yet. And all of it is the result of like the fall and big picture sin. If it's not right, like when someone has cancer, we don't, well, maybe some people do, but less and less, we're just, we are not saying, well, you must've done something that earned you that cancer. I think we've moved away from that a lot, maybe not, but just the idea that, yes, we're all impacted by sin. And some of that is our personal sin, but some of that is just living in a fallen world and everything is broken. Yeah. Do y'all think that we should be more careful with the sorts of words that we throw around? And I'll give you one example. And this is just, I t- I'm not offended. Like, it's not like, I can't believe this, but it does give me pause for thought. And I'm like, man, I wish we wouldn't use this word so flippantly. But when I hear pastors or even in worship songs, throw the word anxiety around, I'm reading you. I know what you mean. You're basically saying, you know, because even most translations of the Philippians passage, it even says, give all of our anxious thoughts or anxiety. But I think what we're talking about there is worry. Like, okay, my my daughter is out with friends right now. I could be worried or I could say, God, I, I trust you. Please give me peace that passes all understanding. I know that you're with my child. But when we throw anxiety around and we don't like in a sermon, and I and I've heard somebody at Seacoast do this, and I was very appreciative. But there was a there was like a distinction made. Hey, I'm talking about worry. This is what we're we're talking about your day to day worry. We're not talking about clinical anxiety. That's that's kind of a deeper thing, isn't it? About time that we should really be careful in the church around the the sorts of words that we use and in and the ways that we use them when it comes to mental health. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, and again, you know, I I get the trickiness around anxiety, but, you know, also anxiety is something that is happening in my body. When I have an anxious response to something, something is happening in my body before I am making a single choice about it. You know, and so I think when we when we do not look at it in an integrated way, and I mean, I, I I'm going to go back to neuroscience again because I think it's really important to think about the pattern that is happening in my brain. You know, often as a result of something that has happened to me that was not my fault. I mean, I can give you the example that after Darren died, the kids and I had an agreement that. It is not okay for any of us not to answer the phone, not to pick up the phone or answer a text message when we don't know where someone is because it produced significant anxiety in all of us when we didn't know where someone was given the trauma that we had lived. And so, you know, there was a time shortly after that that I saw a tweet from a very prominent 
pastor who I generally really respect, but he said basically that anxiety, you know, is evidence of, of not trusting God. And, and I just thought, wow, you know, if you want to come at me and talk to me about not trusting God, when I am having a response in my body, um, based on something that I have lived and uh, that was not my fault and that I'm having to trust God in ways that I never could have guessed or predicted. You can go ahead and do that. But I think that is a gross misrepresentation of both scripture and the character of God. And so I think we we cannot reduce these things to one verse or, you know, or, or just throw it out there in a way to make it us feel better about helping someone or whatever that is. It, it's just more complex. Yeah, than I that, definitely sure. agree with you, Amy. And I, I think that um, what you said, I, I want to say I heard Dr. Anita Phillips talking about this at our Chosen Women's Conference last year, but how your body is keeping the score. Your, your body's actually trying to tell you something that could potentially lead you to maybe a greater understanding of what's going on in, in your your total picture, your total body, physical, mental health, all of that. But when we basically say, hey, stuff that because it's a sin and the Bible says we should, you know, we're, we're actually hurting people a lot more than we're helping. And I'm grateful for Joey because Joey has a, um, I feel like your antenna is up for some of those things that we may just maybe blind spots, honestly, for a lot of pastors. Like I would say that what you just described, Amy, I'd love to take that little clip and let uh, let pastors just listen to it because I don't think that we always understand how we are the situations we're speaking about or speaking to um, and the complexity of it. And so I think a lot of times it's a blind spot of just ignorance and lack of understanding. And there's not malicious intent on that. But I'm grateful that Joey has just like a trigger, like where he'll come to me and go, Hey, when this guy said this, or when you said this, this is what it, how I received it. It's like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I, you know, never would, if I was sitting with a person and understood their story, I would have never said that one line thing that I said that I thought was being helpful because I'd realize how hurtful that is and how I'm just trying to short circuit a process that needs to happen and a discovery process of what's really going on. And so anyways, I just, I agree. I'm sorry. I've, I'm sure I've done it. I'm sure there are moments that I've, um, I've done it, but the more that I've, I've learned, I'm like, man, we've got to be more careful in the church, uh, about how we talk about these things. And your experience it, uh, with, with the church, Elizabeth, do you see this as a, as a, as a pretty big one? Yeah, I do. Josh, I love what you just said. I, I want to hold a lot of room for error with this because we are, we're all trying and we're going to say the wrong things. Right. Um, and just being able to hold both the humility, Josh, that you just showed and also the kindness towards that. Cause we're, we are going to say the wrong things, but absolutely this, there's this fear. I mean, Amy, you said it so beautifully that our bodies feel emotion and respond to anxiety because God, God made our bodies to do that so that we know when, when, when we're physically unsafe, emotionally unsafe, we need these things. And when we stop listening to them, and, and I think Christians are afraid, well, that we will take it too far. I, that's what I often hear is like, well, if I look inside and I say going to church makes me sad. So then I guess I'm just not going to go to church anymore. They're like afraid that the emotions will run the show. It's like, well, maybe you could look inside, realize you're sad and then get curious about it. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop going to church, but it does tell me something's not right. And I need to get curious and I need help, whether it be a friend, a pastor, 
a therapist, you know, whatever, whatever that may be. Um, because we are learning so much more about the brain and the body. The research is coming out like crazy. It's out there and it's really accessible. So we can know these things and understand them. Yeah, Amy, just bragging on you a little bit. It was kind of funny at the time, but you felt so bad. And I was like, please don't feel bad. Like I, as someone who understands anxiety, I'm like proud of you, like that you would do this. But basically, Josh, I, I think you knew this, but you know, we were recording tons of episodes ahead of time before releasing this, the Seacoast podcast. And two of the episodes was with Amy reflecting on, on Darren and then reflecting on her current life. And I think it was the first one we recorded. You listened to over and you're like, I just don't feel comfortable airing that. And it was because you were very in tune. Like you could hear yourself and recognize that it wasn't com- you talking at that time when we recorded, it wasn't coming from a place of peace and brought anxiety, just you hearing it. And you're like, you know, if we could record it all over or, or whatever. But all I could think of is I'm so glad you spoke up because the it would be a horrible thing for me to think of Every time you thought about that episode that people are listening to, they're hearing what you heard that brought you anxiety. Has that been something that you've been in tuned with for a long time now? Or has this been kind of recently you've been more in tuned with your mental health and anxiety and triggers and that sort of thing? Well, I mean, I I saw a counselor for years as a pastor's wife, just because I, um, I just, you know, hit enough challenges where I was like, I need help. This is overwhelming. And I've got to have somebody to talk to about that. So that part of it was normal for me. I had never experienced anxiety to a significant degree until when, when Darren was fired from the journey. And in, you know, particularly the year or two after that, when everything just fell apart for us. I had never experienced anxiety like that in my life. Um, and I, it was a particular the way it manifested physically. Like I felt like I was nauseous for two years, you know, and, and just living with that feeling all, all the time or, or being able to feel kind of that adrenaline surge of it, um, you know, when it was worse was just terrible. And so that absolutely put me in touch with that and, and kind of forced me to understand some things in a different way, you know, than I had before uh, about myself um, and kind of what to do and how to, how to manage that. Just honestly, just practical strategies for how to manage that because we were in a significantly anxious, difficult period of life there for a long time. And so I actually think that time helped me later, you know, deal with some of of the significant anxiety after life fell apart again, you know, in in ways that were worse than before. But I think that learning, I love the word curious um, that Elizabeth, you know, used just learning to pay attention um, and to be curious about what's happening and ask questions about that before I judge it. You know, I, I like the I, the definition of curiosity is suspending judgment for a moment to be able to learn something new. Um, and so I think that that paying attention to what's happening is not about me becoming self-preoccupied or about self-focus. It's about understanding what's happening in this in this body and this person that God has made me to be and how do I interact with him and the rest of the world, you know, in the midst of that. And if I'm not paying attention there, I can't even begin, you know, to to interact with him or yeah. anyone else about yeah. it. Elizabeth, you obviously haven't been to all the churches in the world, not even close. So you may not be able to speak <laughs> into this one. But do you think that pastors 
who do pastoral counseling, do you think that they tend to get into territory they have no business getting into with someone because they don't have the expertise to really talk through something? Do you think that's something that is happening a lot? I think it's happening a lot. It's happened for a long time. And I think it can be exceptionally dangerous. I think it has seen it be dangerous. Yeah. And it's probably, I would imagine it's, it goes back to God is above all things. The spiritual life is like the the most important. And so if you're a pastor, you've, you've got the top of the line sort of advice, but not taking into mind just how connected the, the spiritual is from the mental and just how closely connected they are. And, and honestly, probably some some pride there too, as far as what we think we're able to offer. But I would say probably most of it is with good intentions. Hey, I just want to help this person. (laughs) They're in a really bad place. And I don't recognize that I'm not really able to give the advice, but... Well, I was just going to say, you you get on a platform and preach a 30-minute message and people assume that you're an expert on all things, you know, I mean, obviously nobody would say that, but it just comes like the role comes with this expectation of expertise. I even think about this and uh, it's probably a little bit of a, you know, diversion from what we're talking about, but there's an expectation that a pastor is going to comment on every significant social issue or tragedy that happens in the world. Like we're supposed to have this expertise and be able to translate all of it. And it's like, I can remember being 22, 23 years old, been married for a year, and I'm sitting with couples and trying to help them navigate these extremely complex marriage issues that I had no business you know, talking about. And so thankfully, we did have counselors that we would refer out to, and we had older pastors on our staff that I could go, hey, can, can you step into this thing? And I get it. I see where people assume things about us. And like you said, Joey, it takes a lot of humility to go, oh, wait, wait a minute. We're in territory that I don't understand um, and that I'm not capable, I'm not equipped for. Let me help you find somebody who is. And um, I think, you know, at least at Seacoast, I feel like we're in a lot, lot different place today than we were back, you know, 20 years ago when I was a 22, 23 year old guy doing all this counseling, but where we just have to recognize like, hey, this is what we're gifted for. This is what we're called to do. And let's try to stay in that lane. And it doesn't mean we can't speak to different things in terms of what does God's word say about it and and how do we do that. But I think that most of the time we stand on a platform and people assume we're experts and then we start to believe that hype about ourselves and end up hurting people. Yeah. I think therapists are trained not to give advice, right? I think I just take issue with the idea of when, when therapist or pastor starts giving advice. I want the pa- a pastor to speak to what God says. Yes, yes, yes. But that's not the same thing as telling someone what they should do. And that to me feels scary no matter who it comes from, because both therapist and pastor are in a position of power that's kind of scary. And if you don't know what you don't know, right, then if you're a, a pastor who hasn't been to really good therapy, then you don't even know when you're stepping into that world. And the same way that, you know, I went to seminary for my counseling degree and I took six Bible classes. So I don't presume to know that I can now lead a church in my knowledge of the Bible, like no way. But most pastors, I have had fewer counseling classes than I have had Bible classes, right? Therapy is actually a real profession. (laughs) (laughs) Get out. out. (laughs) 
You know, I think the other thing that's so important here, and and we talked a little bit about the pastoral pressure before, and Josh, you know, mm-hmm. I think explained that very well. But yeah. I, I think if you are a person in a church and you have a pastor, you have to get very real with yourself about your expectations of your pastor. And we all have something in us, I think, that wants, we want heroes and we want heroines. But, you know, sometimes I think it's not so much a matter of pride in the pastor or humility. That can certainly be the issue. But I know some contexts where the pastor saying, I don't know, or I don't know what to do to help you, it is simply not allowed. Like that, that could be grounds for being fired, honestly. Uh, there is just, there is such a pedestal um, and there is such tremendous pressure and so obviously pastors have a responsibility to know their, their lines of expertise fall. But I think if we are in a church, we also have a responsibility um, around our own expectations and what, and what we project onto our leaders, because that is really terrible uh, pressure to live under, particularly when what you want to do is help people. Yeah. Amy, I've actually been thinking a lot about that lately, about how unknown and unexplored that piece is among them among congregants of how they're viewing their pastor and what they're projecting, because it is a huge problem. And I I don't even exactly know, unless the person is going to someone and saying, help me see these things, how to start weeding that out. We did a sermon a couple of weeks ago or a couple months ago. My dad did one on basically, he was recording it for pastors that come into his uh, retreat center that he and Darren had had dreamed about and that he's being able to, to do right now. But he basically did a message on how the church should act towards and handle their pastors, which I've never heard a message on that. And it was a really, I think it was a really cool starting point. And we had so much feedback because I'm sitting in the run through going, nobody's going to care about this stuff. I don't know why, you know, we're taking up a weekend and man, the feedback was like, thank you. I had no idea that you carried this kind of pressure. I had no idea that, you know, when I would do these types of things, it would help. But Elizabeth, I just think we should maybe get a few of us to put our heads together to go, how could we help people have a healthier disposition towards their spiritual leaders uh, without putting them on pedestals? Because the pedestal, it's scary because we all know what it is to, to have somebody that we idolized or had in an improper place let us down. It can It can destabilize a lot of things in our own life, but I also think, man, how scary it is to be on a pedestal. I don't ever want to be on a pe- pedestal um, because then I'm just set up to disappoint people. I'm set up to fail at what I'm trying to do. And so I think there could be some fun conversations that we could have about how do we do, how do we get that out? How do we help people with that? I love that you bring it up. I think it's it's a problem that it is at least, I don't know that it's solvable, but we could at least uh, do some things that would help people understand Elizabeth, from the from the ministry side of things, but given your education and experience in the mental health profession, do you enter into people situations with the tab open of, hey, this could be spiritual oppression, this could be demonic attack? Is that a part of what you carry from a ministry perspective, knowing what you know about the human mind? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely believe that that is a thing, but I, it, it, for right or wrong, it doesn't tend to be my lens because I don't really know what we would do differently anyway. 
I grew up where the, the demons did everything so that we didn't have to look at our own sin. <laughs> and they were all hard of hearing because you had to yell at them. Like when you're yelling at them, you had to yell. You can't talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that may be, I mean, truly that may be just my own like overcorrecting, but I just, I don't know. I, I don't know how it helps to label that. And then again, how do it, how do we even really know? I mean, I, I know in other countries we see these very clear pictures of demonic influence more than we do in the States. It's just not really my lens as yep. I go in. Yep. Cool. That was good hanging. Thank y'all all. Good uh, to meet you, Elizabeth and Amy. Great to see you too. Yeah. Great to see you and good to meet yeah, you too, Elizabeth. Great time with you all. Thanks. Awesome. We all have a good rest of the day. Thank y'all. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to email us your questions at podcast at seacoast.org. Also in the show notes, there's a link to our podcast Facebook group, as well as a link to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe now so you're always alerted of newly released content. Thanks for being a listener. Or just your praying, it's the way that you love That can make a better way when people know that they love Then you'll see a heart change The way that you love your neighbor